And Father, we come to You in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that He would be our vision today. Father, we come to You pleading only His obedience and His sufferings because we have nothing good to give You. No value to offer You except for what has been given to us through Him. So Lord, as we prepare to open Your Word we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive it. We ask that you would use it today to transform us from one more degree of glory to the next, and that today we would be made more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, today we continue to intercede. We plead to you, the Prince of Peace, over the conflict in Ukraine and our brothers and sisters in Christ who are negatively impacted, and we ask that you and your might and strength would bring it to an end that destruction would end and that peace would reign. Father, in our own congregation today, we pray and lift up those who are sick and unable to be with us. We pray for those who may be traveling, that you would give them safe passage and return them to us, and that as they're away, opportunities for the gospel would abound. Lord, I pray today for fathers and mothers who have children who have drifted away from you or do not know you. I pray for husbands and wives who may have drifted from each other. I pray for weary brothers and sisters who even today may be drifting from the faith. And so we ask, according to your will, that we would be rooted and grounded in you. Or that we would persevere to the end by the power of your grace and the power of your spirit within us, that we would live confidently in the promise of Philippians 1, that he who began the good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But Father, we come to your word this morning because it is breathed out by you and that it is profitable. So Lord, use it today to rebuke us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. And Father, I ask today for your help. Will you speak through me a word that will edify your church and glorify your name? Father, help me not to treat excellent matter in a defective way or to bear a broken testimony to so worthy a redeemer. Help us to see today that Jesus is worth everything that we are and everything that we have. So use your word today, Father. Edify your church. Glorify your name. Sanctify us in truth because your word is truth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22 is where we're going to spend our time together. Uh, this is the passage that Ron uh, read for us just a few moments ago. And if you're here today as our guest, you're here with us for the first time. My name's Taylor, and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And what we've been doing for the last two months is we've been working through a message series called Ecclesia, where we've been looking at what the church is according to God's word, and more specifically, what are the marks of a healthy church? Uh, even among the body of Christ today, there's a lot of confusion about what the church is and, and what the church should be doing and how the church should go about doing it. And so the intent of this message series is to recenter us on God's plan and design and definition for his church. The mantra we've repeated all along the way is that words have meaning. You and I have not been given the freedom to, to make words that we find in Scripture, make them mean what we want them to mean. So over the last several weeks, we have looked at prayer. We have looked at uh, the two-sided coin of preaching and teaching. We've looked at the ordinances of baptism and communion. We've looked at fellowship and evangelism. And then last week, we took a look at biblical church membership. And as we've seen week in and week out, this word church, it has a meaning. It means uh, in its simplest form, assembly or gathering. But when we look at the whole of the New Testament, um, we see, uh, just to put a little bit more uh, flesh on this, that the local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. They gather regularly under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the whole counsel of God's word and to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. When we look at the New Testament, these are the irreducible minimums. 
We, we cannot just take any category of spiritual activity that we participated in and label it as church. Whenever we lose any one of these components, we lose the church in the biblical sense. So today, uh, we'll be looking at the next identifying marker of a healthy church, which is discipleship. Now, our mission statement as a church family says very simply that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. And this is most frequently repeated in a shorthand version of this. Our church family should know together. It's that we exist to preach the gospel and do what, cross community? Make disciples. We exist to preach the gospel and make disciples. And we champion this statement not because it's our mission statement for our church. We champion this statement because when you look at the words of Jesus, this is his mission for his church. I'm not opposed to churches having mission statements, but whatever mission statement a church has, it needs to sound a whole lot like the Great Commission, amen? Because otherwise we're starting to drift away from what Jesus has called us to do and to be. So uh, seven years ago, I was in the process of developing a prospectus for a potential church plant in Beaufort. And um, as I was going through this process, I was evaluating different church planting networks for partnership and training. And there was one network in particular that was highly recommended to me because of uh, the number of churches that they were churning out and um, had a couple of, of folks that I knew who were involved with this particular church planting network. But you know, when I went to their website, had a couple of conversations, what I found didn't look as much like a strategy for fulfilling the Great Commission. Uh, what I found looked a lot more like a strategy for launching a small business. So you went to the website, there's a lot of information about how to best market to your community. What types of advertising have the greatest reach? There were promises of record-breaking attendance on day one. The strategy and approach was pretty simple. You, you launch as big as you possibly can with the goal of being for the church to grow as fast as it possibly can. It was how to uh, accurately market within your community, make sure people knew that you weren't like all those other churches, that, man, thank God, after 2,000 years of church history, finally we came along and got it right. And, and so the promises, you know, were really, really big. And it sounds really enticing, but as I investigated further, you know, what I found of many of these churches, if you looked at them five years down the road, seven years down the road, 10 years down the road, that these, these churches that had started with a massive impact had, uh, within just a decade, many of them dwindled down to absolutely nothing. And so this kind of begs the question, why? Why does this happen? You know, the Sunday morning stage can help to build a ministry that is a mile wide. But when you pull the backstage curtain that you uh, look at things doctrinally and relationally, what we find about many churches is that, yes, they're a mile wide, but they're an inch deep. Because in all of the language that I found in the website, all the language that I heard in the conversations I had about advertising and fundraising and high Sunday morning attendance, the one word that was most noticeably absent was discipleship. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, his instructions were not, go therefore and launch big churches. His instructions were, go therefore and make disciples. These are the words of Mike Breen. He says this really well in his book, Building a Disciple in Culture. If you make disciples, you always get the church. But if you make a church, you rarely get disciples. Where disciples are made, healthy churches aren't just started. Healthy churches are sustained. But where churches are planted like small businesses, we might temporarily attract new curious customers and consumers, but very rarely will we make disciples. Now again, this word disciple, like every other word we've looked at the last several weeks together, it has a meaning. In its simplest form, the word disciple just means learner or follower. And so in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus calling his first disciples to himself, his first learners, his first followers, the group of men who are going to travel with him for three years as he carries out his earthly ministry. And as we walk through Matthew 4, what we'll see is that Jesus calls his disciples to become disciples who then in turn will make disciples of all Nations, And as we examine the approach of Jesus, what we'll find is a, a local church path for sustainable and fruitful discipleship. Now, before we jump right into verse 18, I want to set the context here a little bit. When we get to Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus is just now starting his public ministry. He was, uh, after his baptism, led out into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days, and he overcame the temptation of the devil with the word of God. And as he came out of the wilderness, we see in Matthew 4, 17, that Jesus begins uh, preaching this particular message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is at the beginning of the gospel account. It really shapes all of Jesus, the entirety of his earthly ministry. This is his message. Repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message that had been preached by John the Baptist before him. This is the message that's preached by Jesus during his earthly ministry. This is the message that Jesus has entrusted to his church today until his second coming. We proclaim this message, repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from your rebellion against God. Turn even from your religious pursuit to earn salvation in your own way. Put your faith in Jesus Christ Plead his obedience and suffering. Trust in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Hang the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we do this with urgency until he returns. So Jesus comes out of the wilderness preaching this message, and then he comes and calls his first disciples in verse 18. Let's read this together again. It says, while walking in the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, And Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. Everyone say, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20 says, immediately. Everyone say, immediately. Immediately Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. What's verse 22 say? Immediately. Immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. So this is the path of discipleship. This is the call of Jesus to his first disciples, and this is the path of discipleship in the local church today. We see first on this passage that disciples, very simply, are made. Disciples are made. It's the invitation from Jesus, follow me. If you go to the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, this is the marching order that Jesus had given to his church until he returns again. Go therefore. If you go back a couple verses before, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go therefore, in light of that authority, go and make disciples of all nations. So disciples are made. And we see from Matthew 4 how a disciple is made. We see the disciples are made by answering the call to follow Christ. Jesus calls out to them, follow me. Now, Jesus had uh, what is known to us as an itinerant or peripatetic ministry. In layman's terms, translation, he walked everywhere. Jesus traveled from place to place. It was ministry on the go, so uh, it wasn't formal classroom instruction. And as he taught, as he walked, he would teach, and his disciples would literally follow in his footsteps and listen to the words that he was teaching. Now, if you just read the Gospel of Matthew by itself, it'd be really easy to to read this passage and mistakenly assume that this is the first time these men have encountered Jesus. But if we go to the parallel Gospel account, look at John chapter 1, we quickly see uh, that this isn't the case. Now, from John's Gospel, we know that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and it's actually Andrew who comes to Peter in John 1.41 and tells his brother, hey, we have found the Messiah. You know, uh, R.C. Sproul has made a comment on this passage, and I love this. He says, you read through the Gospels, you don't know a whole lot about Andrew, but this is what we do know about Andrew. Almost every time we see his name, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. What a great thing to be known for, right? And that's what Andrew's doing. It's Andrew who, who tells Peter in John chapter 1, we have found the Messiah. John 1 also has another unnamed disciple with Andrew, who many uh, believe is actually John. This is his gospel account, and elsewhere in the gospel account, like when he outruns Peter to the tomb, he refers to himself sometimes as the other disciple. So Matthew 4, when Jesus is calling them to follow, they knew exactly who was calling them. Their long-awaited Messiah had come, and now he extends the invitation to them, follow me, follow me. It was a call to follow in his literal footsteps. And I think probably one of the most famous footprints ever photographed in human history is the, the footprint of those who first walked on the moon. You think about the, the picture that, uh, of, of the boot in the moon dust and just the significance of all that and how you know after the first men walked on the moon for the next uh, decade, there were many others who followed in their literal and metaphorical footsteps. And so just so much significance that goes into that single footprint of, of thinking that you know, man has now traveled to, to worlds previously unknown, has set foot where no other man had previously set foot. There's so much significance of that footprint on the moon. Now think about where these disciples were as they followed Jesus. Those footprints in the dust, church. That was not the footprint of a man who walked on the moon. That was the footprint of the man who had hung the moon and put it in its place. 
I think of a boy growing up Western North Carolina, we'd get these deep snows and I would follow in my dad's when I was little, not still today, really short legs, just pray for me. And so, so I'm always having to follow in my dad's footsteps, just one step after the other, but I, they weren't following in their father's footsteps. They were following in the footsteps of God. That is the me that was calling them. That is the one who cried out to them, follow me, come to me. You know, we call this theologically the effectual call of God. You know, we studied back in the fall of the book of Titus, and we looked at a few other passages from Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, and we know that it was God in eternity past, that he has, he has seen us. He calls, he foreknows, he predestines, he calls to us in eternity past, and yet the effectual call of God is that moment in the here and now when our eyes and ears are open up to hear and believe and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They heard the effectual call of God in this moment. It's he who was calling them. It's he who's calling us. And the sovereign call of a sovereign God who is the Lord of all creation demands everything of those who will come to him. We see this embodied in the lives of these first disciples. So becoming a disciple, being made into a disciple, it starts with answering the call to follow Jesus. But answering the call to follow Jesus also means obeying his call to forsake everything else. We answer the call to follow Christ, and as we answer the call to follow Christ, we are obeying also simultaneously a call to forsake everything else. Look at how it was for these first disciples. It was a call to forsake their homes. They were fishermen in Galilee, but now they would be traveling with Jesus as part of his itinerant ministry. It was a call to forsake their work. They had vocations as fishermen. Now they were going to receive a commission as fishers of men. It was a call to forsake money. I love this little detail. Peter and John had cast their nets into the sea, but were never told that they draw them back up. It says immediately they left their nets and followed him. We know uh, from James and John, the fact that they had a boat that demonstrates their family was probably uh, upper middle to high class. They had a pretty lucrative fishing business. They'd been very successful. We know that because they were able to afford a boat. And so their business had been financially profitable. For them, it was a call to forsake their families. It says they didn't just leave their boat. It says immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. This is what we see right away from the call of these first disciples. When Christ calls us to himself, discipleship requires an undivided heart, unwavering devotion, and unconditional surrender. Church, I hope you understand. We're kind of in this place right now culturally where asking someone the question, are you a Christian, is an almost utterly useless question. Now, particularly in our cultural context, asking someone, are you a Christian, is an almost completely useless question because many in our context today, they believe they're Christians because they were born in America. Many believe they're Christians because they vote for conservative values and, and vote uh, for, for good morals. Many think that they're Christians because they've got a, a great granddaddy 10 generations removed who helped build a church building once, and that's just kind of been passed on through the family. You know, there's so many of us who, who follow Christ, or at least claim to follow Christ under such faults and, and shaky pretenses. So here's a much better question than, are you a Christian? A much better question is this, is Jesus your treasure of greatest value? Do you prize and cherish Jesus Christ above everything else? And is there any question whatsoever that you value him above all else? We look at it from Matthew 4, do you prize Jesus above your home? Do you prize Jesus above your career? Do you prize Jesus above your money? Do you prize Jesus above your family? Do you prize Jesus Christ even above your very life? Because Jesus will go on to say in this gospel account, that's exactly what it's going to cost. If you go to the middle of Mark's gospel account, Mark chapter eight, the crowd had grown. Massive crowd that's following Jesus. And this is the pattern of the ministry of Jesus. As the crowd got bigger, the teaching got harder. We tend to do the opposite church culture today. When the crowd's bigger, we, we got we to, man, we, we can't go into those issues. We'll offend people. They might not come back. They might not like us anymore. We tend to do the opposite. Jesus, no, when the crowd got bigger, the teaching got harder. The path became more narrow because he knew that as human beings, man, we just had this terrible propensity to bandwagon things just because it's popular and everybody else is doing it. And, and so just in order to cut right through all of that, Jesus turns around. This is so offensive to most of our modern sensibilities. This is how he invited people. Like if Jesus was doing the welcome on Sunday morning, this is how he would have done it. Mark chapter eight. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You think the whole crowd stuck around after that one? 
That's, friends, that's what we call a good old-fashioned backdoor revival. I mean, just stuck with like, we, you, only, you preach something like that, only the people who are really in are going to keep sticking with this. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He calls them, demands everything. It's one thing to launch churches that draw crowds. It's a very different thing to make disciples who will take up the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I alluded to last week, these are famous words from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, there's a snippet of this in your message notes if you're following the worship guide. The full context is on the screen. And these are the words of Bonhoeffer several decades ago. He said, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give ourselves over to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And here the famous words from Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's, Martin Luther, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Disciples are made by following Jesus and by forsaking all else. It's a call to Jesus above anything else. It's a call to Jesus above everything else. And it's a level of devotion that should make our love for anything else look like hatred compared to our love for God. This is what Jesus calls us to. But disciples aren't just made. Second, we see that disciples will mature. Disciples are made and disciples mature. Jesus says, follow me. And then the invitation is, I will make you. So this is going to be progressive work. Now, who is the one who is doing the making of these disciples? It's Jesus. Follow me and I will make you. So again, there's a sense in which we do become disciples the moment we forsake all else and follow Christ. But there's also a sense in which we are progressively becoming disciples as we follow Jesus daily and are conformed into his image. This is the second half of the Great Commission. Again, the Great Commission doesn't end with go therefore make disciples and baptize them. The second half of the Great Commission, Jesus says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And man, for Jesus with his disciples, that was a process of about three years. There was a continual growing in their knowledge and their understanding of the word of God. So someone answers the call to follow Christ and their first step in obedience to Jesus is in baptism. Now, I preached on baptism just a, a few weeks ago, but you know, what we know about baptism is that it's an, it's an external demonstration of internal transformation. We are showing on the outside what is happening in the inside. And what's happened on the inside is that the old us has died and been buried with Jesus Christ. We have died to the old self. We have died to our sins. We have died to ourselves. We have died to our desires. We have died to the lusts of our flesh. And we have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, praise God, after this service today, we have the privilege of baptizing three new brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, so we'll celebrate that uh, here in in just a, a little less than an hour together as a church family. And those are the words that I'll share as we're baptizing these brothers and sisters is buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. It's not the work of baptism that saves us. It's a work we do to demonstrate that we have been saved. And what we're demonstrating in baptism is we have died. We have effectively died with Christ and a new us has been raised to life with him. But that's not where discipleship ends. That is not where discipleship ends. It's where it begins. For so many of us, I fear, our journey of discipleship was, was nothing more than a walk down an aisle. It, we, we prayed a prayer. We walked an aisle. We filled out a card. We got a t-shirt. We got baptized and then started helping the kids ministry. And that was kind of it, right? Like, it just, it just ends there. Like, we, we quit growing in our knowledge of God. We never grow in our understanding of God. And God desires so much more for his people. He doesn't just intend that we be baptized. He intends that we follow him wholeheartedly for the rest of our lives. So again, our mission as a church says that we'll preach the gospel and make disciples, but our vision, what we want to see happening as we preach the gospel and make disciples is to see lives continually transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Day in and day out, week in and week out, it's the preaching of the message of the gospel that's making us more and more like Jesus Christ. And again, for so many of us, I fear for you, the gospel in your mind, it's like kindergarten Christianity. Now you need to move on to like end times charts. Like now now I need to move up kind of into that. There's nothing wrong with that, man. There's nothing wrong with going deeper into the word of God. But but man, as Tim Keller has said, the gospel's not the ABCs, it's the A to Z. It's your everything. And so I just ask you this morning, brother, sister, who's been following Jesus for a minute, 5, 10, 20, 50 years, does the gospel still move you? Does the gospel still make you weep? Does the gospel still make you sing? Do you remember that you were the stranger and Jesus sought after you and he called you, not because of something great he saw in you, but because he saw nothing in you and he gave you worth and he gave you value by dying on a cross for your sins? Do you see this? We continually grow. We're continually transformed by this message. The call of the Great Commission is not go and lead people to make decisions for Jesus. The call of the Great Commission is go and make disciples of Jesus. I want you to turn with me in your Bible for just a moment. Two different places. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. So Ephesians 4, 11, and then Hebrews 5, 11. So turn in, turn on if you're a digital person. Uh, Ephesians 4, Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. I want to read these passages for us because they show us how God desires for his people to grow and to mature and also a challenge against us when we refuse to grow and to mature. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Hebrews 5, verse 11. Again, you know, I worry at times that the same emphasis we have given to Christ's call, you must be born again. I worry at times we've not given the same amount of emphasis to his command, teach them to obey. So we'll call people to repent and to believe, but but maybe not as much emphasis on the teaching to obey. And Christ certainly calls us to be born again, but sadly for many professing believers in Jesus Christ, they're born again and then never leave the nursery. Understand that there is a major, major difference between faith that is childlike and faith that is childish. Jesus calls us to have childlike faith. Childlike faith means that we believe him for anything, but childish faith will fall for anything. And this is what Ephesians 4, Hebrews 5 speaks in. So Hebrews 4, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, uh, let's read verses 11 through 16. It says that he, Jesus, the Lord, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, for what reason? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That this, this is for me. So like, hear my heart on this. God has not called me to entertain you. I hope you find the preaching and the teaching of the word of God here engaging, encouraging, and edifying. I am not called to entertain. We are called to equip. And and, and it's to this end, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. For how long? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How long am I to quip? How long am I to preach? How long am I to engage in this work? How long am I to to press us to maturity until we reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ? Translation, not happening here in the next 50 years. Until the day that we see him face to face, so that we may no longer be children. For this purpose, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up. Everybody say grow up. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. That's the Apostle Paul, master of the run-on sentence. We equip maturity, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to grow up in every way. And here's what happens when we don't. This is what happens in Hebrews chapter 5. So uh, the writer of Hebrews has just uh, given this, this beautiful picture of how Jesus is our great high priest. Uh, and yet there's, there's many believers who are still within his audience that, man, they, they've just not yet taken these steps of growth and maturity as they should have as a body of believers. And so this is the warning that he gives them, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again, 
the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We are called to have faith that is childlike, church. We are rebuked when our faith is childish. We have to be rooted in the word of God. We have to grow up in every way in Christ so that, as Paul said, as the winds blow, as, as false doctrine, as the winds of false doctrine blow, as the cultural winds are, are blowing, that we're not going to be people who are constantly knocked over. And man, that this continues to be why the body of Christ here in the West, we just continue to get leveled by things when they happen culturally, because we're not rooted in the word of God. We have no idea what to do with the word justice when we hear it, because we don't have a biblical concept of justice. We have no idea what to do with secular ideologies and philosophies that lead us away from the word of God. We have no idea as a culture what to do with, with where the culture is going in terms of gender and sexual identity and sexual ethics because we've not been rooted in the word of God. And so anytime the winds of false doctrine blow, we topple over. And Christ calls us to maturity, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to be people who are constantly being fed by the word of God, equipping ourselves, being discipled, so that when these winds blow, we can continue to remain strong. Your discipleship does not stop at your baptism. That's where it starts. And we have a great example of this locally, um, the ongoing maturity in Christ. We have a good example of this locally at Paris Island. Like, we know that this is true. You know, you've been to Paris Island. You've, you've either run under it or you've driven under it. It's that big banner that says, we make what? Marines. We make Marines. That's, that's what they do there, right? Like, no question whatsoever. We make Marines. This is what we do. And, and yet all of us know that when that recruit graduates and becomes a Marine, as he walks through recruit training, his training doesn't stop there, does it? No, no, it's, it's just the beginning, I mean, ask, ask some of the spouses and kids in this room, does the training stop at graduation? If only it did, right? Like some of you feel that in a very personal way. If only it did, no, no, no. They train and they train and they train and they train and they train. And then there are deployments, what we might as a church called missions, that there's opportunities where they put all of that training into real world use. And so in the same way that a Marine's training doesn't stop the day of their graduation, your discipleship doesn't stop the day of your baptism. If we put a big sign above the church, this is what we do here, we, we kind of do this with our mission statement, but, but any sign a church puts above it, it needs to include those words, we make disciples. But we don't just make disciples in the sense of calling people to Jesus, we are making disciples as we lead people to maturity in Jesus. So disciples are made, disciples mature, and third, we see from this passage that disciples will multiply. As we become followers of Jesus, the evidence that we have truly become followers of Jesus is that we continue to mature in our relationship with Jesus. And the evidence that we are maturing in our relationship with Jesus is that we have joined in on his mission to be fishers of men as we multiply his word to others. In Jeremiah 16, while the nation of Israel was in exile, the Lord had spoken of a day through the prophet when many fishers would catch the Lord's people and draw them back to their home. And so in the same way, this is what's been given to us and what was given to these men is that they were going to go to those who were spiritually in exile due to their sin, and they were going to catch them and draw them back to the Lord. Now, a couple weeks ago, Alex preached on evangelism, did just a wonderful job giving us practical handles on evangelism. And so if you didn't listen to that message, excuse me, or hear that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to that again. Two weeks from now, I'll be preaching on mission. And so just, uh, I'm not going to get in-depth into this this morning, but just very briefly, I want to make sure we don't miss this today. The clearest mark of true biblical maturity is not how many Bible studies you've completed. The clearest mark of biblical maturity is not how many conferences you've attended, how many degrees you hold, how many books you've read, even how many mission trips you've been on. One of the clearest marks, clearest evidences of biblical maturity is this question, are you multiplying? Have you become a disciple who in turn is actually making disciples? Because until we become disciples who are making disciples, it doesn't matter if you've been in the church for 20, 30, 50 years. If you've not yet started making disciples, you remain a child in your faith. If you are constantly in a posture where it's still others feeding you, eventually you get to the place as, as followers of Jesus, we got to get to the place where it's, it's now what feeds us is to feed others. It's to turn around and to give. This is what Jesus said of his own ministry. He said, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. 
And this is how we are fed as we grow and as we mature in Christ. Listen, if you feel kind of stalled in your spiritual growth, in your spiritual growth, I might just ask you this morning, who are you discipling? Because at, there comes a point in time where that becomes the way you are truly fed. You learn to feed yourself on the word of God. You learn to root yourself in the word of God. You're not always depending on others for this. And you in turn are depositing that in someone else. So we see that one of the clearest marks of maturity is multiplication. We see this through the New Testament, the early church in Acts chapter 9. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what did it do? It multiplied. It multiplied. We see 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So again, we just, we just ask this question because we're a little bit past the halfway point. This could start to feel a little bit monotonous right now. But again, why, why 13 weeks studying the doctrine of the church? Why, why 13 weeks of cautions and warnings against the way our, our churches have culturally drifted? Here's the reason for the caution, church, because an emphasis on church growth that, that's centered on gathering as many people as possible around the gifts of one per- person, that might bring addition. But when we center on discipleship, equipping and maturing as many disciples as possible to make more disciples, that fosters a culture of multiplication. Addition is good. Multiplication is better. And the mission that Jesus has called us to is multiplication. It's not just the work of one pastor, one teacher, one elder. No, we're given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This is one of the simplest reasons why we preach the Bible verse by verse. Some of you have picked up on this. By preaching it verse by verse, we're simultaneously teaching you how to study your Bible. And so the the purpose of this is equipping, not just that you have more information, but transformation that actually leads to action and to mission. Addition is good, multiplication is better. The evidence that a true disciple has been made is that they grow and mature, and the evidence that we're truly growing and maturing is that we're multiplying and making more disciples. So what do we do with all this this morning? Do we become disciples? How do we get engaged in in maturing and growing and making other disciples? A few challenges for us as we start to close things out today. First challenge is this, is in terms of this path of discipleship, follow Christ and forsake all else. This is the call of Jesus, that this is how to become a disciple. This is how disciples are made. Follow Christ and forsake all else. You know, the first century Jewish context, aspiring students would attach themselves to a rabbi with the hopes that they would prove themselves good enough, and one day the rabbi would turn around, look at them, and say, follow me. And that's not the approach of Jesus. Jesus does not have people come just to hang on to him, begging to be good enough, hoping to get noticed, hoping that they meet all of his criteria, hoping that one day he he would turn around. No, this is not what Jesus does. Jesus goes into the world and he personally seeks out the people that have absolutely nothing to offer. He seeks out those who have the least to offer. He chose these disciples, not because they demonstrated high potential, but because he desired to display his power and his glory through the lives of a bunch of otherwise worthless men to show his goodness through them. When Jesus calls us in his effectual call, it's not because of anything good that's in us. And I know that Bush presses against our ego, but it's not because he saw something great in us. Like, man, that guy had a great score on the SAT. I'm a lot of potential there. Like prestigious seminary, man, fine Christian family that that he comes from. That's not what Jesus looks at. He, He looks at the people that no one else would have chosen. And he says, come to me. Come to me. Come follow me. The ones that were cut out from the religious system, he says, come to me. And I will make you. I will make you fishers of men. I will do this transforming work within you. I will make you into something greater than you ever could have possibly imagined for yourself. He calls us to him. These men heard the call of Jesus. They recognized who was calling them and they dropped everything immediately and they ran for him. They recognized who their Lord was. The question for you today is, have you truly recognized who he is? Have you truly recognized who Jesus is? It is one thing to say you are a Christian. I ask you this morning, is he your greatest treasure? Do you prize Jesus Christ above all else? Have you been following Jesus, being a Christian on your terms, or have you become a follower of Jesus on his terms? Because the terms he laid out for his disciples then are still the same terms he lays out for us today. Just walk through the gospel of Matthew. 
Look at how Jesus calls others to himself. He says that we must prize him above our homes. Matthew 8, 18 through 20, it says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Easier said than done. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Dad's got some more time. I'd like to spend time with him and be able to, to, to bury him and be by his graveside when he goes. And how's Jesus respond? Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. It cost you everything. He says, we have to prize him above our families. This is Matthew 10, 37 through 38. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He shows us we have to prize him above money and possessions. This is his interaction with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Young man had come to him and asked, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect to go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had many great possessions. We have to prize Jesus above life itself. This is Matthew 16, the call of discipleship. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Do you love Jesus more than your home? Do you love Jesus more than your family? Do you love Jesus more than money? Do you love Jesus more than possessions? Do you love Jesus more than your vocation, more than your career? Do you love Jesus more than your future plans? Do you love Jesus more than life itself? And I ask these questions, church, because this is what we tend to do as, as Western followers of Jesus, where we don't face a lot of opposition for, face, for following Jesus, is, is many of us, we are willing to follow Jesus up to the point that it becomes uncomfortable. And hear my heart this morning. If you are only willing to follow Jesus to the point that it becomes uncomfortable, you have not yet even started to follow Jesus Christ. It will cost you everything. But here's the beauty of the gospel. There is no one who has ever paid the full price of following Jesus that has regretted paying that cost. This isn't in my notes this morning, but I, I just I had this on my heart even just now. Just before the sermon, I was reading these words inside cover of my Bible, the words of Jim Elliott. I read these every Sunday before every message. It's that reminder, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Have you lost it all to follow Jesus? Because what you will find in return is far greater than anything you could have ever imagined for yourself. As we take this step to follow Jesus, second challenge is to take intentional steps to grow and mature. Take intentional steps to grow and mature. Listen, it's, it's amazing. We will make plans for dinner. We make plans for vacation. We make plans for our kids' education and their sports and their activities. We'll make plans for retirement. Some of us love planning so much that we will actually make a plan to sit down and make plans. And so I just asked the question this morning, like, do you have a plan for growing and maturing in Jesus Christ? Do you have a plan for how you're going to grow and mature in Jesus Christ? We plan for everything else. Are you planning to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Because he here's what I've learned about, about spiritual growth, and I encourage you to write this down. Your spiritual growth will be occasionally incidental, but it will never be consistently accidental. It will be occasionally incidental, but never consistently accidental. And here's what I mean by that. Like, like you're going to have certainly these, what we might call God moments, you know, just unplanned interactions, kind of light bulb moments in your journey as you, as you follow the Lord. And, and, and those are going to be just kind of here, there, everywhere. But, but unless you have like some sort of actual intentional plan for growing and maturing in Jesus Christ, most of us are going to stall out in our spiritual growth and become almost completely ineffective in the Great Commission. Like, what is your plan for growing and maturing in Christ? Like, like, how are you reading and memorizing God's word? What's your plan for doing that? Just curious, show of hands, how many of you are doing the, the church-wide discipleship journal Bible reading plan uh, with us this year? So, right, like, like, how are you reading the whole counsel of God's word and not just the parts that you like? Because parts of us, like, some of us, like, there, there's parts of the Bible, like, we're just not going to touch voluntarily. So how are you exposing yourself to the whole counsel of God's word? So those of us doing that reading plan, praise God, we made it through numbers this week, Right? Like we're still alive, get Galatians this weekend, Deuteronomy starts tomorrow, so deep breath today, right back in it, back into the law. But, but how are you, you, you're not gonna grow and mature if you're not exposing yourself to the full counsel of God's word. I got 45 minutes every week. I can't give you the whole Bible every week. Like how are you growing and maturing in Christ? What is your plan for getting away in prayer, fasting, seeking the Lord? How are you doing that? How are you making time for that? When is that happening? How is that happening? Where is that happening? 
How are you growing and maturing in your faith under the leadership of other mature believers in Christ? People who can challenge you, who can correct you, who can hold you accountable, who can encourage you when you're falling short. How will you give and serve within the body of Christ? How, how are you engaging mission locally, globally to the ends of the earth? If we're going to do all that Jesus commanded, it's gonna require great intentionality on the part of all of us. How are you intentionally striving to grow and mature as a follower of Christ? And third challenge for us in light of Matthew 4 this morning simply is to be a disciple who makes disciples. Answer the call to follow Jesus. Lay out a clear, intentional plan for how you're growing, going to grow spiritually. But then, friends, one day the day needs to come that you now turn around and deposit into others what's been deposited into you. Okay, we're going to come back to this in just a couple of weeks, more practically how to do this. You know, but parents, right away, I think we have to recognize that this work of discipleship, first and foremost, it starts in our homes with our children. And church, hear, hear my heart on this. Again, I've got limited time each week. 40, 45 minutes most weeks. Kids that are in Sunday school, we, we know that our kids team does an amazing job just trying to, to share the word with them on an elementary level, on an easy, easily understood level. Student ministry Wednesday night, Cole, those leaders, they're gonna do everything that they can to, to pour the gospel into those students to disciple them. Discipleship is primarily, first and foremost, a work that needs to start in your home. If you are a, a, a parent who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who has children. You are the primary spiritual influence, for better or for worse, in the lives of your kids. And we have to lead and, and model for them and follow the example of Jesus in modeling this in our own home. Beyond that, we do this in our neighborhoods, calling others to follow Christ, discipling them, nurturing their faith. We can do this in our workplaces. You can do this in your sphere of influence. We do this to the ends of the earth among all nations, but most importantly, we do this together as a local body of believers right here in the church. So again, we return to the mantra, words have meaning. So what is discipling? Mark Dever gives this, and I think it's really helpful for us today. Very simply, discipling is helping others follow Jesus. It's doing them spiritual good. Discipling is initiating a relationship in which you teach, correct, model, and love. The local church is the best place for such relationships to grow. After all, love this, discipling really is just a bunch of church members taking responsibility to prepare one another for glory. That's what God has called us into this morning. And again, as I shared a few moments ago here in about 20, 25 minutes, we have a few baptisms to celebrate. Can we just praise God for that, by the way, again this morning? And a few baptisms we'll celebrate as a church family. And you know, we praise God because this tells us new disciples are being made. There are, there are those among us who, who heard the effectual call of Jesus and said, he's worth my life. I want to forsake all else. I want to follow Jesus. And, and this is what's particularly amazing about those who are being baptized today. If you really get behind the scenes of a couple of these stories, this is what you find. What you find is a disciple who was serious about making disciples. Not, not, a, not a pastor, not a, not a professor, you know, not just, just a regular follower of Jesus who is serious about making disciples, who are taking responsibility for the spiritual maturity and the spiritual growth of those who are taking that step today, who are coming alongside them. They've taken up the mantle to be a fisher of men, a fisher of women, those who are calling others to Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus calls us into today. Listen, he is worthy of your life. He is worthy of your life. Whatever you think is in your life today that's good, Jesus is better. And he calls you to immediately drop it all, leave it behind, and come after him. The parable says that Jesus is like treasure hidden in a field. Rich man had a field, and, or they found a field, and there was treasure buried in it. It says that in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has, and he buys that field because he's found something greater. That's what the call to Jesus is. It's to call not just to something, but to someone who's greater. He calls us to be made into disciples, to mature as disciples, and to multiply as disciples to the ends of the earth until the day that we see him face to face, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Father, we, we ask to that end this morning that you would be glorified in this congregation, that we would be serious about the commission that you've given us. Father, I pray for every person that's in this room. I pray for the person now even who has never heard your effectual call, who may in this moment be hearing your voice calling them to follow you, calling them out of their life, calling them out of death, calling them out of bondage and brokenness. 
that they in this moment, Lord, would confess and repent, recognize that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and with great urgency run to you. Believe in you for for their salvation, to put their faith and confidence in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for each of us in this room who are followers of your son that we might consider today what we are struggling to forsake, that we might recognize idols that are good things, but things that we have exalted above you that are keeping us from wholeheartedly engaging in the mission you've called us to. Help us to forsake these things today and to see that Jesus is so much better. So church, I just ask you to keep your heads bowed with me for a moment. Just a second, we're gonna come to the table for communion. But before we do that, let's examine our hearts and our lives. Do you treasure Jesus above everything else? Is he your greatest treasure above home, above vocation, above career, above money, above material things, above family, above your identity, above even your own life? Have you hung the hopes of your soul on the Son of God? Will you follow in his footsteps today? Leave it all behind, forsake it all, and lay hold of Jesus. So before we come to the table, let's come in a posture of confession, repentance. Let's ask the Lord to identify areas of our hearts and lives that are out of step with his word, that he would be glorified in us striving to walk and to follow and to know him. So Father, we come to this table this morning to remember your son Jesus and what he's done for us. To forsake our sin, to forsake our comforts, to forsake anything that we prize and cherish above you. Lord, let us lay these down and take up your cross and follow you. So Father, as we confess, as we repent, as we praise, as we pray, as we sing, as we respond, be glorified in and through it all that we would not be like those who go the way of the world, but who take up the cross and follow Jesus. Be glorified in us to that end today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.